If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and we're looking at the first 30 verses. Um, we're coming to a decisive moment in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in a sense, Mark here is climaxing, because we find in Mark chapter 8, Peter's confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ. You look at verse 29, there Jesus asked him, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. See, that confession really splits the gospel of Mark into two halves. In the first half, we see Jesus' ministry across Galilee. And in the second half, we see Jesus head towards Jerusalem. In the first half, we see Jesus' teaching geared toward the masses. Yet in the second half, he's focused rather upon his disciples. And in the first half, Jesus' disciples fail to understand that he's the Messiah, yet in the second half, they struggle to see that he's the suffering Messiah. And what is more, uh, both halves really climax and conclude with confessions of faith. You see, in Mark, Peter confesses faith in Christ, in Jesus as the Christ. And in Mark 15, a, a Roman centurion confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's really something of Mark's purpose. He wants us to see and believe that Jesus has, is the one who has all authority, who is the suffering messianic son of God, who is worthy to be followed as Lord and Savior. And therefore, with that idea in mind, let's turn to our passage, and we'll see something of that even this evening. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to 30. Uh, please read with me. This is God's word. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from, from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves, loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave thanks to the disciples to, and gave, gave, to, gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they sat, sat, set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And, he immediately, and immediately he got into the boat with the disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact they had one bread. 
Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Have you, net, have you not yet perceive, or do you not perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves, loaves from the 5,000? How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000. How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had, had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly and sent him to his home. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's pray again, if you will. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this evening as has been prayed as a needy people. Uh, for many, this has been a trying week, a week filled with troubles and temptations, a week filled with failures, a week filled with affliction and suffering, a week filled with doubts, perhaps. Yet, dear Lord, we come before you recognizing that you are the God who reigns over all things and you've even allowed these things these troubles so that in the thick of it we would lift our eyes to you and cry out to you for help and so even this evening as we look at this passage as we consider your word in in light of all the struggles we face in this world we pray and ask you lord help us Lead and guide us in your truths so that we would worship you in a way that honors you and pleases you. And, and also encounter trials in such a way that glorifies you. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us, give us grace for all our needs. And may you be glorified in everything we say, think, and do in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2 Corinthians, Paul argues and tells us we must walk by faith, not by sight. That is to say, in light of all the struggles and the challenges of life, in light of this world that is not our home, in light of all that discourages us, that, that's the context of 2 Samuel 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, in light of all these things, Paul says, walk by faith, and not by sight. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not easy. 
as we walk by faith, we, we cannot but help see so much that causes us to fear. We cannot help but see things that causes us to, to get angry and frustrated and, and even discouraged. In fact, all these things end up being hurdles to our faith. All these things result in, in weakening our faith. John Owen, in his book, Behold the Glory of Christ, one of the most influential books that I've read, he says this, Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, and distresses, ungoverned passions, and lust. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace. Now, if own is right, then the reason we struggle to walk by faith is because we have failed to fix our eyes on Christ by faith. Walking by faith and not by sight isn't easy after all because how many perhaps you do not even have faith? Or perhaps how many you have faith yet it's feeble, it's vulnerable, it's faltering? See, walking by faith, not by sight, is, is not as easy. Now, why draw your attention this evening to the topic of faith? Well, I would argue Mark is drawing us this direction. Mark has given us, up till this point, plenty of reasons to believe in Jesus. He's, he's given us enough reasons to walk by faith. Uh, again and again, he has shown us the authority of Jesus. We've seen his authoritative words, his teaching, his parables. We've seen the authority of his works, his miracles, his healings, his miraculous power over nature. And again and again, Mark has shown us the affections of Jesus. We've seen how close he is, how he identifies with sinners, how he sits and eats with them, how he cares. We've seen his compassion for the needy, how he touches, how he provides. See, Mark has lavished us at this point with plenty of reasons to believe in Jesus. He's painted a portrait of, of Jesus as a powerfully present Savior. He's given us enough fuel for our faith. In fact, at key points in his gospel, he's shown us people who have come to faith. We've seen the faith of the four friends in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. We've seen the faith of the unclean woman in Mark 5.34. And we've even seen the faith of the Syrophoenician woman in, in Mark 7.28. And this ought to be all of our responses to Jesus. Faith. When we see him and understand his ministry, his authority, his affections, the response ought to be faith. Yet at the same time, Mark has consistently shown us how many people still fail to see him, still fail to believe upon him. For one, consider these Pharisees. These were the students of the law. These were the students of the Bible at that time. They were waiting for the Messiah, and here is the Messiah. He arrives, and they do not see him. In fact, they oppose him. They, they persecute him. They plot to kill him. Or consider the disciples of Jesus. These were men who, who heard all that Jesus taught. They saw his miracles, yet how often do we not see them complain? How often do they not evidence hardened hearts? 
And so given all of this, the, the question really becomes, why do some believe and others not? Or, or perhaps we can ask the question this way, how does one come to faith? How does one come to believe in Jesus and have faith in Him as the Messiah? Now surely that's an important question for all of us this evening. If it's impossible to please God without faith, Hebrews 11, 6, if everything that is not of faith is considered sin by Romans 14, 23, then the preeminent question becomes, how does one come to have faith? See, that question matters for you if you're an unbeliever. How can you come to faith? Is it just a case of, of stacking up the right amount of empirical evidence? Is it just about uh, making a reasonable argument for the existence of God? Is that how, how you will come to faith? And that question even matters for a believer. How can you grow in faith, dear believer? Is it just a case of, of blind leaps in the dark, hoping that something will stand and stick? Is it just about relying upon certain experiences, certain religious duties? Is that what a growing faith requires? See, these are important questions. And I think our text points us in the right direction. Now, before we jump in, uh, into the text, I want you to see again the structure of, of this particular section of Mark, uh, which I will be following. Firstly, you see this B-A-A-B-C structure. I hope that makes sense from the screen. You see in Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to 10, you see the compassion of Jesus as he feeds the 4,000. Uh, that is followed by a, a portrait of the unbelief of the Pharisees as they come out and confront Jesus again in Mark 8, 11 to 13. Uh, that is followed by the unbelief of the disciples as, as they reveal that they're actually still spiritually blind. You see that in 8, 14 to 21. And then again, we see another picture of Jesus' compassion as he heals the blind man in 8, 22 to 26. And the passage concludes with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now following the structure, I want you to see three things this evening, or two things and conclude with a third. The first thing I want you to see, and, and the first exhortation I have for you this evening is simply this, beware the problem of unbelief. Uh, beware the problem of unbelief. So in between Jesus' two miracles in Mark 8, Mark lumps together these two encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the disciples. In verse 11 to 13, we see how the Pharisees come out and they pursue Jesus. Mark says in verse 11, look at where he says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now the Greek words therefore for came and argue and test are quite intense actually. The idea seems to, this, to be this, they, they came out as unto war to pursue him. They, they argued with him in order to confound him and control him. They, they tested him so as to stump him and ultimately discredit him. And what we're meant to see here is that these aren't seekers. These aren't guys who care for the truth. No, these are debaters who are settled in their unbelief. See, Mark here substantiates Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1.22, namely that the Jews demand a sign, and he even adds that the Greeks seek wisdom. 
I would actually argue that, that both Jew and Greek are engaged in the same activity. Both want Christ to meet their standards. Both want to set themselves up as the judge over God and Christ. And realize this self-centeredness, this self-elevation is at the heart of unbelief. It's at the heart of unbelief. Remember what Paul says of the unbeliever in Romans 1.25. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. See, the unbeliever is one who elevates himself, who, who elevates himself as God. Stephen Charnock uh, describes unbelief as the undeifying of God, or what Carson would call the, the de-guarding of God. A at another place, Charnock says this, as faith is a going out of ourselves to God to please Him, so unbelief is a departing from the living God to ourselves. And, and that's what we see here in these Pharisees who demand this sign despite all that they've seen, all that they've heard, they want to judge Christ. They want him to meet their standard. They want to, to elevate themselves. That's unbelief. And then take a speci special note of how Jesus responds to such hardened unbelief. Verse 12 and he sighed deeply in his spirit. That is, he groaned inwardly with dismay. And, and it says, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And, and then Mark makes this ominous statement. And he left them. He left them. He, he discarded them. He had nothing more to do with them. See, what's shocking to see is that Jesus in frustration doesn't waste his time with hardened unbelievers. He doesn't stay around to play their games with their stubborn unbelief. Yeah, I've often found it amusing. Back in my early days, I used to listen to a lot of debates. Um, perhaps I had more zeal back then. I don't know. Uh, but you'd often see these atheists pontificate to God. They would often challenge God. It's not uncommon to hear them arrogantly say, God, if you're there, then just make this mic float or make this podium vibrate and they'll believe. See, what a passage like this tells us is that God doesn't play around with fools. God doesn't entertain these games. He doesn't toss his pearls before swine. Hardened unbelievers, those settled in willful unbelief, are actually dismissed by him. As foolish and blind. And why foolish? Why blind? Because the scriptures clearly attest that the heavens declare the glory of God. He is known, yet the problem is we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Carson is right. Failure to believe stems from moral failure to recognize the truth. Not from a want of evidence, but from willful neglect of this or distortion of evidence. That's a fitting description of these Pharisees. These Pharisees have willfully distorted and neglected the Messiah. 
But notice, the Pharisees aren't the only examples of unbelief in this passage. In verse 14 to 21, we see how the disciples themselves struggle with unbelief, with blindness. After being confronted by the Pharisees, Jesus appropriately warns them of their unbelief. That's the leaven of the Pharisees, this unbelief. And where do their minds go? What do they do with this warning? Well, they think about bread. Uh, They think about their tummies. Uh, Their minds go to literal, physical uh, bread. See, these disciples have actually completely missed the point. And you even see something of Jesus' shock here. In response to his disciples, he unloads a, a flurry of rhetorical questions. Verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, why do you not remember? Verse 21, do you not yet understand? Now we can understand something of Jesus' frustration, can't we? These are men who have been with Jesus. They've seen him do great things, they've seen his teaching. They've seen him, yet they haven't actually seen him. You see an example of this in the feeding of the 4,000 when Jesus wants to feed the masses. The disciples ask in verse 4, how can we feed one? How can you feed these people with with bread in this desolate place? Haven't they just experienced Jesus feeding the 5,000? Yet again, they question him. Why? Because they fail to see him with spiritual eyes. They've focused on the physical. They've, they've focused on the, the, the what's in front of them, not upon the Christ in front of them, if I can say it that way. And the result is they, they care more for their lack of bread, whereas Jesus cares more for their lack of faith. And dear friends, may I suggest to you, herein lies the problem of unbelief. Despite being repeatedly exposed to Jesus, despite being exposed to his works and to see the work of God all around, unbelief is blind and mute to God. Unbelief fails to see. And now we see this so often in the church, don't we? How many uh, will say with tears in their eyes that their children were in church. They, they were exposed to sound teaching, to sound preaching. They went through Sunday school, yet today they live as unbelievers. They were here, they saw everything, but they didn't really. But realize that's the problem of unbelief. That's the danger of unbelief. It blinds the eyes, and, and that's the tactic of Satan. That's what he wants. He, he wants to, to turn our eyes off of Christ and to not see him. This is his tactic. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, when he speaks about the unbelievers, he says, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Dear friends, that's why Jesus' warning you matters. That's how Satan will come to you. He will want your eyes off of Christ. He wants to consume you with other things, good things even, and even evil things. Jesus' description here of leaven is quite appropriate in, in the Bible. Leaven is not always, but sometimes, or, or mostly, a symbol of permeating evil and corruption. 
Just as leaven, leaven ferments and causes dough to rise, so unbelief ferments and, and causes spiritual blindness to rise. And, and dear friends, we need to heed Jesus' example. We need to take care lest there be in us a, an evil, unbelieving heart that, that indeed leads us away from the living God. And, and I'm not just speaking here of the unbeliever, I'm, I'm speaking of believers. This is a warning for us. Remember, the Christian life is a life that is marked by a fight. A fight between the flesh and the spirit, and a fight between faith and unbelief. Think of Abraham, uh, the man of faith, right? The, the archetypal man of faith. Yet how often did he not give way to unbelief? I remember when he went into Egypt and he lied about Sarai and had risked his life and risked his marriage. And why did he do so? Because he failed to trust God. He failed to look with faith to God. Now, if that's true of Abraham, the patriarch, the, the man of faith, then how often is it not true of us? See, it's possible to sit in church. It's possible to experience the things of God, to, to witness all that God has done, and he'd walk in spiritual blindness, to, to give way to the tendency of of taking our eyes off of Christ. Let me, let me ask you, dear, dear believer, does that bother you? Does it bother you that it's possible for you to actually miss Jesus? To, to see his things, to, to hear about him, but not actually see him? Does it bother you? A.W. Pink made this comment, a, a living faith is necessary to see a dead unbelief. Does the, the fact that unbelief is a problem we wrestle with, does it bother you? Is your faith keenly aware of, of this danger, this problem, this leaven that will want you to turn from Christ? So dear church, dear friends, dear beloved of God, beware unbelief. Beware spiritual blindness. Beware the tendency to, to lose sight of Jesus. To take your eyes off of him. And that actually leads me to the next point, the next exhortation I have for us this evening. And that is simply this, behold the pioneer of faith. Behold the pioneer of faith. You see that in uh, verse 1 to 10 and 22 to 26. Either side of Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees and the disciples, Jesus performs two more miracles. Uh, you see his compassion in both, really. In verse 2, you see in the feeding of the 5,000, verse 2 says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. You also see his compassion in the, the way he touches the blind man uh, in verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And, and when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, now just like in Mark 7, 33, Jesus lays his hand on this man, not because he's limited in himself, not because he isn't able to heal this man, no, Jesus could do that, but, but the point of him laying his hands on this man is to empathize with him, to, to show this blind man who can only but feel to show him compassion, to show him care. And the point to get is this, Jesus is moved with compassion for the needy, not just to satisfy them physically, but spiritually. 
In fact, I would argue with many commentators, although Mark isn't often symbolic, in these miracles I think he is. That is to say, just as Jesus feeds the 5,000 and physically satisfies them, he satisfies our souls, he, he satisfies our needs. And in particular, just as he opens the eyes of this blind man to see, so too Jesus opens our spiritual eyes. After all, how do we explain the way he heals this blind man? Immediately after he, he chastises these disciples for their spiritual blindness, this, he, he turned, Mark records that he, he heals this blind man, yet unlike any other miracle, this man is healed gradually. Firstly, he lays his hands on the man, and even though he sees, his vision is blurry. Secondly, only after he lays his hands on this man does he see clearly. And realize, at this point in Mark's gospel, that's exactly what Jesus will do with these disciples. So far, they've seen something of Jesus. They, they've recognized something of who he is, but they fail to clearly perceive him and understand him. But from this point onwards, as they journey towards Jerusalem, he will give sight to their spiritual eyes. He will open their ears to hear. And hearing, I argue, is the answer to our question. How does someone come to faith? Why do some believe and others don't? The answer, according to this passage, I would argue, is Jesus. Jesus is the one who opens the spiritually dead eyes to see and believe. After all, Hebrews 2.12 reminds us that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That is, he's the author, the generator, the giver of our faith. And so we need to see that, that on the one hand, faith isn't a result of, of stacking up evidences or, or making nicely packaged arguments. And on the other hand, faith isn't grown by, by standing on, on, on spiritual uh, darkness or standing in spiritual darkness relying on some experience. No, faith is a work of God. In other words, it's a saving grace. It's something God does in the heart of man. It's something Jesus works. Matthew Poole made the comment that there is no coming to Christ but by Christ. Now, there are a few passages we can point to for this. Uh, Acts 3.16 says this, when, when, he, when, when, it's, when Peter heals the, the beggar, uh, he says this, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and, now, and know was made strong, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. As one commentator says, Jesus is both the object and the source of faith in this man. Or consider Acts 11.21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Who's the Lord there in this context? It's, it's the Lord Jesus. And what's the result? And the great number who believed turned to the Lord. See, people turning to Jesus, having faith in him, Acts 11 says, is the result of the Lord giving faith of him converting. Or consider 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. Peter says, and he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
make no mistake about it, Jesus is the object of our faith. We trust not in our works, but in his work. We, we trust in his death as our death so that we would be forgiven of our sin and we trust in his resurrection life that we would live lives acceptable to God. Jesus is the object of our faith, but he's also the source of our faith. He's the pioneer, the, the perfecter of our faith. That's why in Luke 17, when, when the disciples in their weakness, they turn to Jesus and they, pray, and they pray, increase our faith, Lord. Why? Because who else can strengthen weak faith? Who else has grace sufficient to help us in our weaknesses? Jesus and him alone. John Flavel says, the soul is the life of the body. Faith is the life of the soul. And Christ is the life of faith. Dear believer, dear friend, know this. The implication should be obvious. When our faith is faltering, when, when we are faced with trials and threats, when perhaps we're even burdened by doubts, the only recourse is to look to Jesus. The only solution is to turn to Him. And, and even if you're an unbeliever, your only hope isn't to look to rationalism and empiricism. Your only hope is to turn to the one who is the image of the invisible God. Your only hope is to ask him to, to give you ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, one of my favorite early church fathers was Hilary of Poitiers, and it's a guy. It's a weird name. His name's even weirder in Latin, Hilarius. But regardless of his name... Uh, in his book on the Trinity, the Trinitas, the first chapter, he really describes his journey of faith. And he, he says that he came to a point in his life where he just felt incomplete. He, he desired rest, and wherever he turned, he couldn't find rest. He, he couldn't find comfort. He, he couldn't find joy. And so he turned to the philosophers. He, he turned to the great ancient philosophers. And he realized, wait a minute, they don't know what they're talking about. They're just as confused as anyone else. And so he says he, he turned to the moralists. He, he turned to the, the virtue philosophers who were all about having the right virtue. And he realized it's all a facade. Behind their virtue, they're just as empty as anyone else. And so he turned to the gods. He turned to the ancient gods of the pagan world. And he realized these gods are actually just big versions of us. They're selfish. They're greedy. They don't have any rest. And then finally, he says he comes to the Old Testament God. He comes to the I am, and, and there finally he has some peace. Finally, something makes sense. There's someone beyond him, greater than him. But still, there's, there's fear. How can this God care for me? And at the end of the chapter, he says, well, I only came to see this rest and find this rest when I Turn to Jesus. He says the change from when he read the passage we read earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and we have seen His glory. So it's in Jesus that we find this rest. And, and Hillary's point is simply this. It's only in Jesus that you find what you're looking for. It's only as you go to Him to open your ears and your eyes it's only as you come to Him humbly with your questions even, as you come to Him with your needs and your desires and your wants, if you come to Him with a humble heart. It's only then when you get to see who God is. It's only then when, when faith starts working. In fact, you could argue 
that even that turning to Christ with questions is even a step of faith. As someone has said, a man cannot have faith without asking, and in fact, neither can he ask without faith. There's a paradox there. And that really leads me to the concluding point I want us to see this evening, and that is the first steps of faith in Mark 8, 26 to 13. Our passage really ends on this confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. And, and the question I really have is, how did this come about? Right? If, if these disciples are so spiritually blind that they're more consumed about bread, then how did, G, how did Peter make this confession? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew does. Matthew 16, 17, after Peter's confession, Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, even this confession of Peter is a work of God. It is a sovereign work of God's grace in the heart of a blind disciple. It doesn't start in here. No, it starts with God. But I would even say that Jesus here is working on Peter and on these disciples, and as a result, he makes his confession. You see this in the two questions that Jesus asks. He, he first he asks him, who do you say that I am? And they give him the typical answers of Elijah and etc. And then he follows that up by the second question, but who do you say I am? You, Peter. Now what's Jesus doing? I think James Edwards is right. He's challenging his disciples from being passive participants to being active participants. He's challenging his disciples to move from a majority opinion to a personal confession. And realize, as with these disciples, dear friends, it's not enough to just know things about Jesus. It's not enough to, to even bear witness and to have seen all that he's done. It's not enough to go by with what others have said, your parents or your friends. No, each of us, each of us have to make a personal choice about Jesus. Each of us have to stand out from the crowd and personally deal with who he is. Each of us have to come to the place where we either accept him as Christ or we don't. Here is, I would argue, the first step of faith. I know you might be thinking, well, Shane, that doesn't sound very reformed. Uh, I promise you I am reformed. But let me introduce you to a Puritan by the name of Edward Pierce. I've referred to him previously. Pierce defined faith as having three core acts, the act of choice, the act of confidence, that is, to trust in him, and the act of consecration, to follow Christ continually. And the first act, the, the first step, if you will, is choosing Christ above all else. Listen to Pierce on this. He says, in this act of faith, the will is by the Spirit of God sweetly and powerfully determined upon Christ, preferring Him as head and husband, as Lord and Savior before all others. It singles Him out, as it were, from all others, whether persons or things in heaven or on earth, and embraces Him as the best husband, the best Savior, the best Lord. Yes, there are others who offer themselves to his embrace, such as sin and self and law and the world and its enticements. But faith passes all 
Yea, it rejects all with loathing and indignation and pitches upon Christ as infinitely the best. Now, if you don't like how puritanical that sounds, this act of choice is what Psalm 73 verse 25 is all about. Who am I in heaven? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's what faith starts with. A choice for Christ as, as better. We even sang it this evening. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. That's the first step, dear friends, of faith. It is choosing Jesus. And it isn't a choice that we do once. No, it's a daily choice. It's a daily walking by faith, a faith that chooses him again and again and again when our minds are apt to be filled with troubles and fears and dangers and distresses and passions and lusts, it chooses Jesus again. It beholds him with faith as the Christ and it looks to him as the pioneer and the perfecter of that faith, as the strength of our weak, feeble hands. And so the point actually this evening is actually quite simple. Look to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Trust in him as best. Let's pray together. Our blessed Savior, you who came down from the throne of glory to die for poor perishing sinners, save me from the deadly sin of unbelief. Enable me to rely upon you with simplicity as of a child. On you may I repose my soul, for you did bear my sin in your body on the tree for me. Lord, save me from self-righteousness, from the love of the world, from pride of heart, from fleshly indulgence. Keep me near to yourself. Wash me daily in your cleansing blood from every contracting defilement. Clothe me with the robe of righteousness, with the garment of salvation. Cause me to rejoice in you, to live in the light of your countenance, to taste that you are gracious, and to glorify you by growing in conformity to your mind and will. Lord, make that our prayer, make that the desire of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.